Welcome to the Project Fitness Podcast for fitness professionals and fitness enthusiasts who want to be better at life. Fitness is the greatest investment of anyone's life. However, it's not easily obtained, and anyone who says different is just plain wrong. Join award-winning personal trainer and strength conditioning coach Chris Fudge every Monday as he explores all aspects of fitness that can lead you to your optimal health. This podcast is brought to you by the Ready State Virtual Mobility Coach. Dr. Sturette is a movement and mobility coach for players in the NFL, MLB, NHL, and NBA, plus a doctor of physical therapy. Kelly has created a program called Virtual Mobility Coach. Every day, Virtual Mobility Coach gives you guided mobility videos. It walks you step-by-step through Kelly's proven techniques to relieve pain, improve range of motion, and improve performance. Try it completely free for two weeks, and if you decide to continue, you can get 10% off for life using the promo code PROJECT10. Welcome to another episode of the Project Fitness Podcast. Today, I am sitting down with the author of Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices, Jack Bobo. Jack Bobo is the CEO of Futurity, and it delivered more than 500 speeches in 50 countries on the future of food emerging food trends and consumer attitudes and behaviors. He may not be aware, but I've actually been eating food for over 37 years. Jack has also served as a chief communications officer and senior vice president for global policy and government affairs at Intrexon Corporation. Prior to that, Jack worked at the U.S. Department of State for 13 years as a senior advisor for global food policy An attorney with scientific background, Jack received from Indiana University, MS in Environmental Sciences, BS in Biology, and a BA in Psychology and Chemistry. How are you not in school now? That's a lot of education. (laughs) Plus a degree in law. So uh, yeah, I I took the long road. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, Project Fitness Podcast is is pleased to have you on. And today we're going to talk, we're going to talk about food. So let's start off where, where you come from. Your position on food is regarding the future of food. What is the future of food? <laughs> well, you know, in many ways, there's nothing we do that has a bigger, more negative impact on the planet than agriculture. And yet there's also just nothing more important for our daily survival. So the challenge we all have is how to maintain and grow the benefits of agriculture, but to reduce the footprint. Okay. So I'm talking about footprint. Are you talking about um, uh, the side effects of carbon? Are you talking about uh, taking over land? Like, what do you mean by the footprint? Yeah. So really all of the above. So if we were to talk about land, 40% of all the land on earth that could be used for agriculture is being used for agriculture today. Uh, the amount of cropland is the size of South America. The amount of pasture land is as big as Africa. So to, to put that into perspective, if we were to talk about water, 70% of all fresh water goes to agriculture that we use. The Colorado River, the fifth longest river in America, no longer flows to the sea. So these are pretty dramatic impacts. And then you mentioned greenhouse gas emissions. Well, 10 to 15% of emissions come directly from agriculture, but another 10 to 15% come from deforestation and 80% of deforestation is caused by agriculture. Mm. So together that's you know nearly a third of all greenhouse gas emissions, almost as much as energy and more than anything else. So by many, many measures, you know, there's just nothing that has a bigger impact or footprint than agriculture. So, so what's going on with the planet? If all this stuff is, is going down, is this all big contributors to the planet imploding, um, to climate change? What's going on? Yeah, so I, I think when a lot of people hear that, they think, you know, oh my God, everything is bad and it's going to get worse. And it's easy to understand why they think that. You know, we're going to add another 2 billion people to the planet over the next 30 years. We've got 800 million people who are not being fed today. So that leads a lot of people to feel like our food system is broken and things are just going to get worse. And I would suggest that, you know, that's actually not the outlook that I have. Because if we were farming today with 1960s technology, we would actually need 1 billion additional hectares of land in order to produce the food we do. But because of innovation and changes in management practices and all of those things, we didn't need that additional billion hectares. And again, to put that into perspective, that's more than a quarter of all the forest on the planet just would not exist without innovation. And so what I would say is that it's not that things are bad and getting worse, they're actually good and getting better, but not fast enough. And so that's what we really need to be focused on is 
how do we accelerate innovation and reductions in food waste and shifting diets and things like that that we might talk about in order to get to that more sustainable and nutritious future even faster. Okay. So what I'm hearing is there's a lot of agriculture going on. There's 800 million people who are not getting food. And then you even said a couple of words that were very interesting to me, food waste. Is there a lot of food being wasted today? Yeah, there's a huge amount. So if we were looking at the developing world, you know, in Africa and parts of Asia and other places, about a third of all the food that's produced really never makes its way to consumers. You know, it's lost in the field to pests and insects and all sorts of things like that. In the developed world, the United States and Europe, places like that, about a third of food is wasted, but much of it's wasted post-consumer. You know, we, we throw food away that's, you know, past its expiration date, or we just don't eat it for one reason or another. And so when you think about that, a third of all the food produced on the planet is never eaten. And so that's a huge issue. If we could eliminate food waste, all of a sudden we'd have a third more food or we could just reduce our uh, agricultural impact by a third, you know, so either we could feed everybody and we'd have a smaller impact. So food waste is really a critical issue. So what is something that, you know, people could do to reduce the amount of food waste they have? Yeah. So it happens in, you know, in different ways for different products. The three most wasted food items in America are bread, potatoes, and apples. Um, and, apples. you know, so waste for bread is different. You know, it goes moldy and, you know, we, we forget to eat it. And so we throw out half the loaf with potatoes. Um, you know, again, you know, they may be sitting in your garage and you forgot to get them out. And so, you know, you decide maybe they're too soft and not edible. Um, and so, you know, apples again, so it's, maybe even before they get to the consumer, you know, because some apples are not the right size, some are lost in storage and other places. Uh, so from a consumer's perspective, though, some of the things you can do is one, you know, just be mindful of how much you actually need. You know, do you need to buy two loaves of bread when you go to the grocery store or you should you buy more of what you actually expect to use? Same thing with, you know, meat and other products. Uh, another is understanding the difference between um, best buy dates and, you know, safety, mm. because for the most part, the, the dates that are on your food products, those are not safety warnings. Those are about quality, you know? So if you get that uh, milk and it's a day or two past, you don't need to necessarily dump it out, smell it. If it's fine. Go ahead and drink it. Um, for some packaged goods, they may be stale, but they're perfectly edible. Now, I'm not necessarily telling you you have to eat stale food, but you shouldn't worry about it. You know, if you take a bite of it, you know, and you feel it's just not as good as it should be. So those are quality issues. Um, you know, with meat and some other products, you know, absolutely they can go bad, but they don't go bad the day that the label says, you know, that's just, you know, that's when you should have bought the product. And you still have a certain amount of time, you know, to consume it. So being mindful of what those things mean can, can really help us to cut down. And then just when we produce food, you know, be, be mindful of how much did you actually produce versus what you think you're actually going to consume. So you don't have to throw out a bunch of macaroni or pasta or the things that you never get around, you know, think about freezing things, think about, you know, storing it at the beginning, you know, at the end of the evening, instead of letting it sit overnight and realizing it's gone bad, or, you know, you don't want to save it at that point. I always say the difference between myself as a, an adult now in my career versus an adult as a, in university was when I was in university, I used to buy everything that was just expired. <laughs> so I would look at those things, like, right, I can afford this. Now I, I get the stuff that's a little bit uh, earlier, but you're saying it's okay to still eat some of that stuff. Yeah, I, can, and also I, I can explain from experience. I didn't die. I, it worked right. there. Well, and, you know, ugly fruit and other things like that, you know, mm. it, you know, just because, you know, it's not the perfect, you know, potato shape or, you know, it's a, kind of a wonky carrot, you know, it doesn't mean that it tastes bad. Uh, you know, it's so the more we can, you know, normalize eating fruits and vegetables that aren't perfect, mm. the less, the less that gets wasted, you know, because there's a lot of food that just is left in the fields because farmers know that it'll never make it through the grading process. And so it just is left to rot. Now the nutrients get bat added back into the field, but you know, it still would be better if we could find a home in terms of people who are, um, you know, on supplemental income or, you know, other needs, you know, it doesn't have to go to, you know, the paid consumer. There are a lot of people who would be perfectly happy with that produce. Mm -hmm. When you worked at, uh, in Trexon, 
Um, you were doing, you were part of uh, global policies when it, when it comes to food, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so what was that role like? Like, would you literally say, okay, we can sell this, this country can sell that. Like, it sounds like a pretty big job. Well, uh, you know, a lot when I was in the government, I was really doing that big global policy work on food. You know, I've worked in Africa, Asia, Europe and other places. Uh, when I was with the company, it was more of a biotechnology company. And so they worked in food and agriculture, but it was more that some of the products were like, you know, genetically engineered salmon, you know, that reached normal size in less time or uh, you know, animal cloning or other things, some controversial topics and, you know, just looking at global regula- regulations and policy and things like that. Uh, but these days I'm, I'm more, you know, I work with, you know, vegan food companies that are doing plant-based cellular agriculture, which sort of lab grown meat, but I also work with the livestock industry, whether that's pork or beef and others. So I'm sort of all across the value chain in terms of the organizations I work with these days. And what are some of the trends happening in those organizations that's beneficial for health and some that are not beneficial for health? Yeah. So let's see, (laughs) you know, in in terms of sort of the big picture, of course, 42% of Americans are obese, 75% are overweight or obese. And if we don't change how we uh, consume food by 2030, just 10 years from now, we expect 50% of Americans to be obese. So just dramatic problem has huge impact on, you know, health and welfare and ability to enjoy life and all sorts of different measures. And the food we eat, of course, is critically important to that, but also how we eat. So I I like to distinguish, you know, it's obviously Americans are eating a lot more highly processed food, and that's probably not good for them. Um, But, you know, our behaviors are so much different than they used to be in the 1960s. You know, we snack all day long. We, you know, we eat on the run. You may eat over your uh, kitchen sink. And so it's not just what we're eating, but it's how we're eating that has really changed. And of course, that's, you know, what I focus on in my book. Mm -hmm. So people are making bad decisions just from lifestyle factors or, or, or more? Yeah, well, you know, I like to say that, you know, our brains and our environment are driving these bad food choices. You know, our brain is sometimes trying to help us, um, Mm -hmm. but it's often leading us to to very bad outcomes. And, you know, one example of this, you know, relates to, uh, you know, back in the 1980s, when the government was telling us to eat less fat, you know, that, you know, they wanted us to be healthier, have less coronary heart disease and other things. And, food companies did kind of what you would hope they would do. They started introducing all these low fat products. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can get your mayonnaise and your salad dressing and your cookies and all sorts of things that were low fat. And if Americans had sort of continued to eat food in the same way they did before, it might've led to healthier outcomes, but our brains got involved and our brains uh, do something called the halo effect where they think if a product has one good quality, it must have all good qualities. And so if a cookie is low fat, well, eating one cookie is good for me. Eating the whole bag must be great. (laughs) And all of a sudden, you know, we double down on the foods we're eating. And of course, low fat doesn't mean low calorie. And so we ended up things that we were, uh, that were done in order to help us have actually accelerated, you know, the, the rate at which, you know, we become less healthy. Mm -hmm. And so our, our food environment's done the same thing. I like to tell a story that, you know, we think of America as a country with large portion sizes. And if you, you know, everybody around the world seems to to be aware of that, but in some ways our penchant for big food portions all goes back to the mad genius of one man uh, back in the 1960s, David Wallerstein. And Wallerstein's job, he was working with a chain of movie theaters And he was asked to figure out how to sell more popcorn, you know, more things at the concession stand, which is how theaters made money back then, just as today. And he tried everything to get people to go back and buy a second bag of popcorn and just everything failed. And it finally hit him. What if the reason people won't buy more popcorn, it's not because they don't want it, but it's because they'd be embarrassed to go back a second time. They might look gluttonous to their neighbors. And so he decided to offer the jumbo size bag of popcorn. Of course, the rest is history because all of the sales of the concession stand took off when he did that. He actually later went to work for Ray Kroc at McDonald's, and he's the guy who eventually convinced Ray Kroc to offer a large bag of fries 
Um, which, you know, Ray Kroc was like, if they want a second bag of fries, they'll go back and buy it. Well, that's not behavior. Um, so, you know, it wasn't until 1972 that he was able to convince them. And, you know, then of course, you know, all the other restaurant chains followed suit. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. That's, that's very yeah. interesting. Um, so it's America's fault for over. <laughs> <laughs> I think somebody would have figured that one out eventually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And sitting back over here in Canada, we always look, you know, uh, to our neighbors here. I always think of, you know, like uh, a close cousin, yeah. a lot of things that tend to happen over the border in the U S eventually makes its way down here to Canada. And over the last few decades, you're definitely seeing similar trends when it comes to health, obesity, uh, metabolically damaged species, I, I would say as well. And similar concepts, theaters, large popcorn, supersized yeah. fries, all that jazz. It's, it, it's here too. Do you think yeah. that, um, uh, the obesity issue that's happening in your country and my country over here, it's just portion sizes or could the, the, the chemicals be enhancing certain things with our body as well? Well, I think a lot of it is portion sizes, but it's also just behavior like, you know, snacking all day long and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's not that, you know, you're eating a huge amount all day long, but you know, if you're eating an extra 50 or hundred calories, then, you know, that's just weight that you're going to gain. When it comes to the kinds of things we're eating, um, I'm less focused on, you know, like the amount of sugar and other things that some people are. Michael Moss came out with his uh, new book, uh, looking at uh, addiction, you know, that sugar is, you know, an addictive product. And while I think that some of what they're saying, you know, could be true, you know, if it's an addiction, you would think that people with higher income who can afford more bad stuff would eat more bad stuff. But that's not really what we see. Actually, the the higher your income, the more, you know, you could buy the less bad stuff you buy. So there's actually not a correlation between having more money and buying more bad stuff. Uh, so but I, I, I know people with money that don't do cocaine. Right. So could you say but, it's a, you know, a different addiction? Right. So it, it could be, but it's just that addiction doesn't explain everything is, is the point that, you know, their behaviors, your culture, your environment, all of those things can resist addiction. And so blaming it on addiction, we should be looking at culture to solve those problems, not focusing solely on the addiction itself. You know, mm-hmm. people in low income you know, communities, it's not just that they have access to drugs. It's that, you know, there's stress in their lives. There are all sorts of factors that deliver, you know, that unhealthy outcome. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with food. And so we need to look broader than just the food product itself. How can we, you know, introduce kids to, you know, fruits and vegetables earlier? How can we ensure that uh, people on fixed food budgets know how to prepare the food? How do we destigmatize frozen and canned vegetables so that people don't feel like they're doing their kids a disservice by offering those food products? You know, so there are lots of things, making sure that food deserts don't exist. If you can't buy fresh fruits and vegetables, obviously you're not going to have them. And so there's a lot more to the story or that, you know, many cornered, uh, stores in the low-income communities, all they have are ultra-processed foods. Well, you know, if you don't have a fruit and vegetables se- section, you know, you could blame the ultra-processed foods for helping people to gain weight, but the solution may not be to remove those products. It may be to introduce, you know, affordable, healthy products. Mm-hmm. So being involved with, you know, policy over all the years, why is that not happening? Why is it when I go to the grocery store, you know, for me to get a thing of broccoli, it's going to cost me $4.99 Canadian, which is like a buck American, mm-hmm. still expensive over here. And then if I want to get a six pack of juice boxes, 99 cents. Right. So, you know, there, there are a lot of different reasons for that. Uh, you know, a lot of it comes down to supply and demand, of course, you know, if more consumers were demanding fruits and vegetables, then, you know, there would be more suppliers that wanted to get into that business. And so, you know, you think about it in in the United States, uh, 90% of consumers do not get the recommended, you know, five servings of fruits and vegetables each day. And most of them say they want it, but they're just not doing it. And so for some, it's a price issue, but, you know, for most people, it's that they don't taste that good or that, you know, they, they just don't really do it. Uh, you know, many of us can afford it, but you know, figuring out how to do it in a way that we enjoy it is really important. And and so there's there is more to it um, in terms of how do we restructure it. 
There are a lot more initiatives that are happening today where industry is sort of recognizing its role in this. And an example would be in the UK, uh, the grocery store sector has been doing projects uh, over the last few years where they're redesigning the grocery store layout to encourage more purchases of fruits and vegetables. And so they've been able to increase by, I think, about 13% purchases of fruits and vegetables. And the consumers don't even know that they've done this. I mean, they're just buying it because it was a little bit easier to buy the healthy stuff and a little bit harder to buy the unhealthy things. And you know, they can demonstrate it at the cash register that uh, it was happening. And that's where I think there's some real opportunities. It's not about forcing people to you know, eat healthy. It's mm-hmm. about making the right choice or the healthy choice as defined by the, the consumer, not by me or anybody else. Um, the easy choice. Mm-hmm. Um, do governments subsidize farmers? Do they give them money to produce certain things that might encourage them to produce certain things? <laughs> uh, yeah, many many countries have you know subsidies. The United States think you know we average about twenty billion dollars in agricultural subsidies. In places like Europe, it's far higher, and Japan even higher than that. Mm-hmm. And it certainly influences what farmers do, but we've kind of gone away from a world where you um, encourage supply, you know, like farmers got paid by producing more. Most subsidies these days are related to things like uh, crop insurance. And, you know, so if a farmer's crop is destroyed, I think most of us, it makes some sense that you want to make sure that that farmer stays in farming. Because it's good for society that farmers don't go out of business because that just leads to more aggregation. And then the only organizations that can afford to farm are big multi, you know, multinational businesses instead of family farms. So subsidies generally go to the big crops like, you know, corn and soybean and cotton and things like that. And so I think one area where we definitely could do a lot more is making sure that subsidies are also available for the fruits and vegetables that we want greater consumption of. Um, but in terms of land area, you know, it's like 95% of land of agricultural land goes to those big crops. You know, it actually doesn't take that much land to produce the fruits and vegetables that we eat in the United States and Canada mm-hmm. and other places. So a lot of them are being used to produce soy and corn. And you said, what's the other one? Cotton? Cotton, canola in Canada, you know, is a big yeah, one. Yeah, canola. So are, those, aren't, those aren't healthy sources of food, right? Soy is not a big one. Corn's not a big one. Are they utilized in a lot of, you know, products, you know, whether it might be, I, I even heard that they, they use it to feed other animals. Right. You know, like a lot of animals eat corn when they shouldn't be eating corn. Is that true? Well, certainly, you know, a lot of the corn and soy is going to animal feed, you know, I don't know what the exact number, but you know, it's probably 90% or more of corn and soy goes to animal feed. And, you know, there it's, it's kind of about trade-offs, you know, so, you know, many people would say, oh, you know, I want my cows to be raised on pasture. And, you know, to be clear, most, you know, cattle in the United States and in most parts of the world spends most of its life on grass. And then what they do is during, you know, the last six months, they will uh, feed it grain to bulk it up and add a lot of weight. And there it's a trade-off, you know, if you want to leave them on grass for an extra 18 months, you could do that, but they won't gain weight as fast and you won't be able to produce as much meat. And so, uh, you know, there's that question of, you know, do you intensive agriculture versus, you know, lower impact agriculture? Why don't you just put them on green as, you know, as as baby cows, (laughs) maybe a bigger, faster then. Yeah, well, you know, it's just, you know, there's there there are benefits. You know, it's it's again about trade-offs. You know, when's the right time to transition them to to bulk up? You know, most quickly, and uh, you know, it takes a lot of space to to raise these as well. And you know, grass is generally free in terms of a crop, and so you know, why not take advantage of you know the sun's ability to to produce that? And so it allows them to reach a certain point, uh, you know, on grass fed and then make that transition. And, you know, we, we do need more food, you know, 800 million people are not being fed, you know, we going to add a couple more billion to the planet. Uh, so intensive agriculture has a place, but there's also, you know, we also need regenerative agriculture and others that 
is about restoring soil fertility and things like that as well. So there's kind of a role for both in our food system. Mm -hmm. Uh, Could you talk a little bit more about um, restoring soil fertility? Is the soil in the U.S. or or in the world, is it it in danger? Is it not what it used to be? Is it better than what it used to be? (laughs) Well, you know, in many places it's worse. In some places it's better. And, you know, that's kind of always been the case. You know, in the United States and Europe, we're actually expanding forests. You know, every year the amount of forest land in the U.S., and I'm sure it's the same in Canada, you know, expands a little bit. So in the developed world where we have this intensive agriculture, we're able to produce more and more food on less and less land. And that's actually a benefit to the environment because, you know, we're able to expand forests. In other parts of the world, they're cutting down forests in order to expand agriculture. Um, the two prime examples of that would be Brazil and Indonesia. So in Brazil, it's to either do grazing or for soybean production. And in Indonesia, it's for palm oil production. And, you know, so that's obviously not a good thing. And, you know, the, the soils in places like Brazil are not necessarily great soils anyway. And so um, over time, you're actually degrading those. Uh, but things like regenerative where, you know, sometimes it is beneficial to soil to have cattle walking across it as long as it's not overgrazing it uh, because that aerates the soil and they, you know, leave nutrients and other things. And so there can be some benefits. And mm-hmm. then also just, um, you know, whether you're using low till or no till agriculture, where you're not going through and tilling the soil can leave more organic matter on the soil, which can actually build up the soil from year to year. And, you know, that's obviously the goal of regenerative agriculture and organic agriculture is to build that biomass so that you're leaving the soil better than when you started. Okay. And and tilling, you said there's, there's low till and no till that affects the soil negatively. Um, So those practices are positive. So, uh, you know, the idea you know, many of us think of like when you go through and you till the soil with the tractor that you're like turning over this rich earth in order to plant your seed. But the only reason we till soil is for weed control. You're just turning over that soil to get that, those weeds down into the ground Mm -hmm. Um, because tilling is actually a bad thing because after it rains, it compacts the soil Mm -hmm. and it kills the top layer of microbes and earthworms and all those good things are in soil. So the new approaches with low till and no till are to maybe go through and like slice the soil, add a little bit of nutrient, plop in your seed, and then like cover it right back up with Mm -hmm. that same soil. So it never turns it over. It just opens it up and then closes again. That's how I do my lawn. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's good for the soil because um, you don't need as much uh, nutrients. You don't have to like pour it on there. It's very targeted and you have like that organic matter, like, you know, with corn, it could be the, oh, you know, the corn from the, the stalks from the previous year are sort of left on the ground to uh, not, not only to uh, biodegrade, but also to create cover and moisture in the soil. So there are a lot of benefits of low-till or no-till agriculture for soil. Mm-hmm. So you said low till, so I assume there's high till. So is, <laughs> right. it, is it true that when there's high till or, or heavy tilling, that releases carbon into the air. And I'm assuming that's not good for the environment at all. Exactly. So when you till the soil, you know, you're really opening it up and all of that, um, you know, biomass in it, you know, it starts to uh, leach off into the atmosphere. And so that that's definitely a negative. And, and so that's why in the United States and, you know, many parts in Canada and as, as well, the movement to that you know, no-till agriculture has a lot of benefits in terms of carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is an area where genetically modified crops have actually made it much easier to go to low-till or no-till because we use a herbicide to kill the weeds. And so we never have to till the soil because you don't have to, you know, cover up those, you know, but there are pros and cons, you know, Mm -hmm. using a herbicide can lead to resistant weeds and, you know, then you have a different problem. Yeah. And then can't you use uh, cattle? and rotate cattle from place to place. And then you leave the manure from there. Can't that cause nutrients for the soil to grow or would the weeds still take over? So the, the weeds would still take over you. What you're really doing in terms of rotation, you're, you know, with uh, cattle is you would move them from like one pasture to the next mm-hmm. and then allow that one to, you know, 
return, uh, lay fallow for a while. When it comes to crops, the best way to address the weeds is to rotate your crops. So you do soybeans and then you do corn and then maybe soybeans again, because then uh, different crops promote different types of weeds. And so when you do the same crop, you know, corn, corn, corn for several years in a row, um, you know, you're really just encouraging those types of weeds to grow. And you also need to use more fertilizer. One of the good things about soybeans is that it fixes nitrogen in the soil. And so when you use uh, grow soybeans, then the next year you plant corn, you don't actually have to use as much fertilizer because it has nitrogen in the soil from those soybeans. Mm -hmm. So crop rotations are a great way of sort of reducing weeds and improving the health of the soil. Mm -hmm. Corn and soy keeps coming up. <laughs> you keep mentioning that multiple times. Is there other things the U.S. farms or are those like the standard things that tend to be farmed? Well, you know, certainly wheat and cotton, you know, would sort of be the, the big four. Mm -hmm. So corn and soy, wheat and cotton. And, you know, I, I like to remind people, you know, I think a lot of people think that, you know, sort of European agriculture is really focused on these small farms and, you know, they encourage less insecticides and less fertilizer than the U.S. or Canada and that it's, it's more uh, environmentally friendly. And, you know, I'd point out that, you know, they're just trade-offs between the two. Uh, the U.S., our top ag exports are, you know, corn, soy, wheat, and cotton, but Europe's uh, largest agriculture exports are beer, wine, whiskey, and cheese. And, you know, I like my beer, wine, whiskey, and cheese. Anybody who knows me knows that's true. But in terms of feeding the world, I'm not sure that those crops are really the ones that are going to do it. And so there are trade-offs between those different types of agricultural production. Uh, because Europe focuses on less intensive agriculture, they, uh, the country that sends the most food to Europe is actually Brazil. And Brazil is one of the two biggest deforesters on the planet. And so, you know, in some ways, Europe has to export its agricultural footprint mm -hmm. in order to feed itself. And, you know, so there's a trade-off when you do things like that. Interesting. You're hearing a lot more in the last few decades that um, people, uh, humans have uh, allergies to certain things such as wheat. People are, you know, they have a uh, gluten intolerance. Uh, a lot of people have issues digesting soy. You're seeing soy products put in a lot of foods that cause digestive stresses. And um, corn, uh, I don't know many people that digest corn. It goes out the way it come. It goes in, you know what I mean? Right. So if these are some of the heavy foods that are being produced and the human species doesn't digest them that well, do you think that's a good idea from a farming perspective? Well, like I said, most of the corn and soy is going to animal feed. So it, it's not really going directly to people. Uh, and then you have a large part of the corn and soy that is used for human food that's just mm -hmm. highly processed. So it's not so much that we're eating soy as we're eating soy lecithin or that we're not just eating corn, but we're eating dextrose or you know some other component. So those two crops tend to be the building blocks mm -hmm. of ingredients that end up in our food. So they may be emulsifiers, they may be, you know, sweeteners, they may be doing lots of different things, but it's not really the whole soybean or corn or something like that. There's food grade products, and then there's sort of more feed or processing type products. And they're just different products. You know, when you go into a Japanese restaurant and you're eating, you know, edamame, you know, that is not the soybean, you know, that some farmer in Indiana is producing. Mm -hmm. um, with your book regarding smart people, you know, making bad food choices, what are good food choices? You know, how should a person eat from a health perspective, or you might say a good perspective? Yeah. So part of it is about reshaping our own food environment so that it makes it just easier in terms of habits. You know, think about this, you know, back in 1960, you know, our parents and our grandparents, you know, they were cooking with Crisco, you know, they were like using the lard and putting it in the pan. And you know, they were doing all sorts of things that we would think of as just crazy, unhealthy today. And yet nobody was obese, right? <laughs> so, so why is it that, you know, at one point in the time, and, you know, we eat a lot more variety of fruits and vegetables today than our grandparents did. Yep. And yet somehow they weren't obese. And so that focus on individual products is important, but understanding how our food environment has changed is really critical. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll go back and use McDonald's as an example again. For most people in the United States and Canada, they don't even know what an adult serving of food looks like. 
They wouldn't know it if I put it in front of them. Because think about this, in 1955, if you went to McDonald's and got your hamburger fries and a soda, you would have gotten a hamburger that was a little bit smaller than the small burger in a kid's meal today. The French fries in a kid's meal are actually a large fry from 1972. That's how big the large fry was. So you can't, you don't even know what a normal size fry looks like anymore. And your soda would have been six or seven ounces. So again, a third smaller than a kid serving or 50% smaller than a kid serving of soda. And that was an adult serving of food. People would eat it. They'd be like, you know, this is great. And so, you know, part of it's not so much about like what we're eating as in terms of how we're eating. And there we can, by recognizing that, of course, you can begin to right size your food in terms of portions and other things. And tips for doing that, you know, a dinner plate in 1960 was seven to nine inches. You know, the average dinner plate today is about 12. So you put 30% more food on your plate, you're probably going to gain some weight. Um, But we also need to look beyond the household at the places where you go, because, you know, before COVID, we ate, many of us ate more than half of our meals outside the home. Mm. And if the restaurant has a 13 inch plate, and then you go home, you just kind of feel like your plate's too small. And so psychologically, you don't get the benefit you would by, you know, choosing those smaller sizes. Um, And so it'd be great if we could begin to get restaurants and others sort of to work with us. And, you know, again, restaurants offer large portions because consumers go to restaurants that offer large portions. Yeah. And the food in a restaurant is often not the most expensive part of running the business. Um, It turns out that real estate and labor are generally the two most expensive parts. And so if they can give away food that you don't need, but you keep coming back, it's worth it to the restaurant owner. But if you, as a consumer, started choosing restaurants that were right-sizing their portions, then restaurants would begin to to transition. Um, But there are other things they can do. I don't know if you've eaten at the um, Cheesecake Factory, but- No, but sounds amazing. (laughs) <laughs> it's a great restaurant started uh, back in Beverly Hills in the 1970s. And, uh, but today in the U S they're just known for enormous portion sizes. Cheesecake or other foods? I, no, they, now they, they offer like 150 menu items plus all the cheesecake that they offer. Oh, it's 150 so you, item factory. Yes. Yeah. So it is <laughs> literally a factory of food. Um, and, you know, I, I went there for Father's Day a few years ago, and I want to teach my kids about portion sizes. So, you know, I, I took them to the home of big portions. But when the food was served, I was a little surprised because it like wasn't the enormous portions I expected. And when I looked at the plate, I'm thinking, man, I can totally eat that. But unlike the average consumer who went to that restaurant, I then took a nine inch plate out of my wife's purse and I replated my food. You can imagine mm-hmm. how excited my kids were to watch me replating food in the restaurant. Come on, and Dad. <laughs> I know. And then when I did it, it was clear that it was actually two full servings. So it completely filled up the nine-inch plate and you had just as much food still sitting on the original plate. So then I reached in and I took out a tape measure and I measured the, the plate. And the original plate was 15 inches wide and 12 inches deep. That's a plate on steroids. Yeah. And so the plate was so big that two full meals look kind of skimpy. Yeah. And even as somebody who like is totally aware of the dangers of portion size, I could have finished that meal, eaten the cheesecake, and it wouldn't have been for another hour that all of a sudden it hit me that I had just eaten two complete meals. Mm-hmm. And so how do we get restaurants like that to work with us and say, hey, would you like a half portion? Or would you like your to-go bag first? In other words, they, when they serve your meal, they actually give you half of it to go. So it's already packaged up. And so those types of things, you know, if, if I get two meals for the price of one, that's a great deal. Mm-hmm. If I eat two meals for the price of one, that is bad value. So, you know, we, we want to work with the restaurants. It's not about stigmatizing them or shaming them. It's about, you know, making them a partner in our health. So my, my takeaway on those two pieces there is uh, one is you, you believe that portion sizes or caloric intake is one of the leading causes of being another people eating too much. And yeah. two, um, switch all your plates at home for six inch plates. 
Right. And of course, movement, you know, the thing that you talk about, you know, obviously we're not moving around nearly as much as, you know, we did in years past. And it's not just about exercising, but it's just making, you know, walking to the store, you know, making movement part of our daily experience uh, that, you know, contributes to that healthier lifestyle as well. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's a little bit of a sensitivity issue um, happening more. I don't know if it's in the U S here in Canada when it comes to uh, raising children. So I'm a father of two boys, five and seven years old. I've had them in daycare. I have them in school now. And a problem or an issue that comes up is we've always had people say, um, you need to pack more food for your kids because they always say they're hungry. <clears throat> and I say, well, they're hosing you, you know, because my kids eat about um, more than enough calories and they need to. And they know that if you, if they tell you they're hungry, you're going to give them junk food because mom and dad don't give them junk food. And what happens is if I take my kid to school in the morning, uh, if I leave, if I take them before morning, there's like a before school program, they'll give him a snack. So we just had breakfast. Then they want to give him a snack. Then he has mid morning break at school, a snack. Then there's lunch afternoon, a snack. What do you think is the first thing he wants to do when he comes home from school snack? So in our household, we're like enough with the snacks. You get three meals a day, maybe four a day or three in one snack, a normal thing. But when we talk to the educators, we talk to the schools, we talk to daycare, they're like, you need to feed. I'm like, no, you don't. And if you, unfortunately, if you go to my kid's school and you take a quick look around, you're going to see that there's a bunch of young, very young, five, six, seven-year-old boys and girls that are already obese, already right. obese, right? My boys are pretty healthy looking, right? I think there is a, a overconsumption of food with the fear of people not eating enough where I'm situated. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, certainly the numbers, you know, agree with what you're saying in terms of, you know, obesity rates and, you know, children are skyrocketing. So, you know, it, there's clearly a problem and, you know, how we eat is at the heart of that, you know, in, in addition to what we're eating. If, the kids were snacking on, you know, carrot sticks in the morning and apple slices in the afternoon. I'm not sure you would probably care that much about that. You know, if they get two extra servings of fruits and vegetables a day, fantastic. I think for most yeah. of us, um, yeah. it's a question of what they're getting. Now, some of those programs have to do with kids, not necessarily many kids may not get nutritious meals at home. And, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot of evidence that, you know, making meals available at school may be the best meals that many kids get. And obviously those have to be healthy meals, not just, you know, eating pizza slices every day. Um, so I think making sure that school nutrition is nutritious is critically important. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you there. Uh, and we need to work on these things early you know, for many parents, when they're trying to convince their kids to eat their fruits and vegetables and say, you know, if you clean your plate, you can get dessert. Well, what that tells the kid is, wow, vegetables must be really bad if I have to have cake in order to eat it. Mm -hmm. Instead of if they were watching their parents and the parents always ate the vegetables first. And if anything was left over, it might be, you know, the meat or the protein on the plate sends a different signal to the child as to, you know, what's good. And, you know, if everybody's fighting over the roasted broccoli, you know, that, you know, that's a great thing. And so I, I think, you know, you're, you're onto something, how we teach our kids about, you know, health and nutrition, you know, so much of that, you know, starts very early in life. And there are, there are efforts in the UK and other places where, you know, they're reducing commercials and marketing to children, um, you know, so that kids aren't asking for, you know, certain types of uh, you know, processed, whether it's uh, cereals and other things. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think we need to be doing a lot more in that regard. Yeah. We, we've been lucky over here in my household. We've identified three ways, um, three simple ways. If you want your kids to eat healthy, it's um, lead by example, lead by example, and lead by example. <laughs> exactly what you said. No, mom yeah. and dad, mom and dad don't skip the good stuff. Right. So, and when they see you mm -hmm. doing it regularly, they follow. And the reason why they ask, you know, that they're at camp or they're whatever, like, oh, could I have a snack? Because they know they're going to get a box of fishy crackers or something that they don't get at home on a regular right. basis. So they're just hosing you is what I keep saying. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, my kids, you know, I, I don't think they had a soda before they were probably seven or eight years old. You know, just, you know, we never had it in the house, so they never thought to ask for it. And then, you know, they 
past the point where they really desired it. You know, I, I've never seen my daughter drink a soda. And so, you know, habits that form early can last a lifetime. You know, and when it comes to the vegetables in our house, you know, we, we love to roast vegetables in the oven. And, you know, my kids have always been the ones who are adding the oil and the spices and other things and, you know, shoving them in the oven. So it's also participatory. And I think, you know, that's important too, because they feel comfortable in the kitchen and, you know, helping support that. And so I think those are habits that are also useful to, to get going early. As soon as they have some form of responsibility and autonomy to it, they're going to gravitate towards it a lot more. So I agree with that. We yeah. get our kids to help it with some of the cooking too. Unfortunately, the five-year-old is not strong enough to hold a pan. So we got to go <laughs> with smaller stuff. Um, what is the future of food? Well, I don't think the future has been written. I think that, you know, there are a lot of possibilities. And I think that, you know, there are a lot of interesting opportunities that are coming along. You know, we have plant-based uh, proteins and we have um, cellular lab-grown meat and other things. And so I think when I look at it, I see a lot of opportunity to produce food, you know, more sustainably, more nutritiously, but a lot will depend on, you know, how the food environment, you know, guides us. Uh, millennials today, and you know, my daughter's 19, are the group that are the most open to plant-based foods, but they're also eating meat at the highest rates. And so, you know, we don't really know which future we're going to have. And that's where I think, uh, you know, looking at the food environment is critical. And if, if we can't get our hands around that, you know, I, I think we're in for a, a pretty rough ride over the next decade as, you know, more and more people are obese and um, living less healthy and happy lives. You know, it's not about stigmatizing somebody for being overweight. Whatever weight is right for you is right for you. But, you know, we do know that many people are struggling. You know, you look at the billions of dollars that are spent on diet products um, that are just not helping. And, you know, many people would focus on a lack of willpower. And my view is if no diet works for everybody, then it's not the person's fault. It's the diet's fault. And, you know, we know that if you stick to a diet, any diet works, but if you can't stick to the diet, then it doesn't matter. And, you know, people didn't have more willpower in 1960 than they do today. And people didn't have different genes in 19, you know, we keep saying, you know, obesity is linked to, um, you know, genetics. And I'm sure that's true, but we didn't have different genes back then. And so, the environment plays the human a critical genome, role. The human genome is not going to change so much in 50 years, <laughs> 60 years, you know? <laughs> right. And so, you know, let's figure out a way to make, make it easier for people. You know, nobody was counting calories in the past. Nobody was, you know, obsessing over, you know, the micronutrients in the food they eat. Um, you know, they were kind of just eating whatever they wanted and somehow it worked out okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You said that uh, people are consuming more more meat today, you know, the millennials than in previous years. Is there more vegetarians today and vegans today than, you know, 50 years ago? You know, there, there are more people that identify as vegan and vegetarian today, but it's still, it's not dramatically higher than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. And, you know, many people who say that they're vegetarian, you know, have eaten meat within, you know, like the last five days. And so, uh, you know, you have to take with a grain of salt what people mean. But I do think that the reporting about veganism, vegetarianism suggests that people want to eat, you know, a more balanced uh you know, type of uh, diet. And, you know, for many Americans and Canadians and others, you know, we, we would all be better off by eating, you know, 10 or 20% fewer calories, you know, we're just eating a lot more than the recommendation. Mm -hmm. And if we cut out more of the processed stuff, that's probably good. But if we started with just eating the right number of calories, that would be a fantastic start. Yeah. What is or what's an easy way to determine what is about the right amount of calories? (laughs) Well, you know, I think, you know, for a woman, it's a couple thousand calories a day for a man, it's 2,500. And, you know, for many Americans, they're eating 3,500, you know, or, or more, you know, if you look at the size of, you know, the number of calories in a um, supersized meal, you know, it could almost be an entire day's worth of calories in one, one meal, Mm -hmm. especially if you're drinking, you know, a 21 ounce soda and things like that. So just you know, thinking about, you know, 
Well, an example I like to give is, you know, if you've ever been on an airplane and you got the little six ounce soda or eight ounce soda and you drank it, you know, how often did you think, wow, I wish I had four more of those? You know, for most of us, we drink it. We're like, wow, that was like the best soda I ever had. Mm -hmm. And we feel like that because we finish drinking it at a point where we sort of are still really enjoying it. Whereas when you drink that 20 ounce soda, by the time you're finishing it, you don't actually enjoy it very much anymore mm-hmm. because it's, it's past peak enjoyment for that product. And so when you right size the food, you actually enhance your enjoyment of that experience. When you go past that moment, you actually just don't enjoy the meal as much as you could have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that, that's a, a great way of putting it. You know, I'm a, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I got a bit of an Achilles heel with M&M's peanut. And I've been there before where you, you overeat and you're like, ah, oh, I don't feel so good. Well, but, of, but if I just well, had like half a bag, I'd be like, that was so satisfying. Well, one of the, the tricks with things like that is if you can buy the M&Ms in single colors, one of the things is we just don't eat as many things like M&Ms if it's like they're all the brown or all the orange ones. Because even though we know they taste the same, that... Um, you know, the options, you know, the um, choice of having all the different colors actually encourages us to take bigger scoops. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because we want variety. And if you get rid of the variety, then all of a sudden desirability actually gets reduced. Variety is a spice of life. You said it. That yeah. must be the psychology part, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Jack Bobo, it was an absolute pleasure having you on here. I learned a ton of information. Um, what do you have going on in the works? I mean, you got your book out, are you working on a new book or is this book fresh? So this book's still pretty fresh. Uh, you know, it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you normally buy books, uh, you know, been encouraging people to think about it because I want people to feel good about the food they're eating. I don't want it to be a source of stress in our lives. I want it to be a source of joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do work with a lot of other food companies consulting and speaking uh, about the future of food and, you know, how do we create that sustainable and nutritious future that we all want? Mm-hmm. Well, very, very good stuff. Um, I'm going to put a link to your book into the show notes. So if anyone's listening now and they want to grab a copy of that, it'll be in the show notes. And then also any um, future links or communication with Jack Bobo if you want to get in touch with them. So Project Fitness Podcast, thanks you so much for coming on today. It was a pleasure. Thanks. You have a great day. You too. Never stop learning because life never stops teaching. If you've learned at least one thing from this podcast and your mission is to help other people, please share this podcast with them. And a reminder, we will be releasing one episode every Monday for the entire year. So make sure to hit subscribe so you get the updated information as soon as possible. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And thank you so much for allowing me to be part of it.